You're listening to the Passion City Church Podcast. To learn more about Passion City Church, including our gathering times in Atlanta and Washington, D.C., visit us online at passioncitychurch.com. Today's talk comes from Pastor Ben Stewart. Well, it's the arrival of a new year, and so this is an appropriate time to evaluate life and set some goals. We all know this. This is when we tend to evaluate the current state of things and say, how can I make some adjustments to improve my current state? And for many of us, that naturally begins to tend towards fitness goals. How do I improve my health? And so I would like to give you unsolicited Ben's theory of fitness goals. You didn't ask, you've not been wondering, how does he do it? But let me tell you, (laughs) my theory of fitness goals, and it's here for free, three things I think you need in order to keep your fitness goals. Number one is I think you need an inspiring location. If you're going to actually improve your health, for many people, what it's going to take is an inspiring location. And you've experienced this. You go to someplace gorgeous, like up in the mountains of Colorado and breathe in that fresh mountain air, you'll just find yourself hiking. And you're not even a hiker, but you're like, I just got to get out there. I remember going to Alaska, and, and I was throwing a football with my brother, and I was like, what time is it? And he was like, 2 a.m. But, you know, the sun didn't go down, and we were like, we just wanted to be out of here. It's amazing. Uh, the sound of music taught us this. <laughs> you take a white lady and put her in a field in Austria, you don't have to tell her to spin around. You don't have to have some instructor going, get those spins going, ladies. They're just going to do it right? An inspiring location can get you to move. There's something about awe that produces action, right? Uh, Another thing you are going to need if you're going to keep your fitness goals is an accountable community. You're going to need an accountable community. If If you don't have an inspiring location, you at least need some people that will shame you into showing up, right? Some of you, you need that. You need that group that's expecting you to be there, and if you're not there, they will notice, and they will tell you about it. Where are you, bro? Class is starting. Get here. Do you even lift, man? Like you need some people to push you to get you past that hump of the lack of motivation you experience inside. And so it's not a pulling force, but it's a pushing one to keep you going when your own internal desires have started to wane. Or the third thing you need to keep your fitness goals is a compelling goal. That I am so motivated by a goal, I can't stop. And and let me be clear on this. Saying yeah, I'd like to lose five pounds this year. That ain't it. You're probably not going to do it. That's just not compelling. I'm talking about like a heart attack. And when you have that and realize, hey, I got to make some changes, it becomes easier to keep your goals. You know, it's like, I need to eat a little healthier. But when you're at death's door, you're like, bacon's out. Okay, bye pigs. No more fried food. See you later, Bojangles. You can move on and you're going to keep it because of that pain. Uh, I remember for me, when I injured my back, you know, the, the first time I heard it was, was pretty rough. I recovered, felt good about it. Uh, and then I uh, injured it exponentially worse. Herniated one disc, bulging several other ones, was an enormous amount of pain, couldn't walk, couldn't stand up. And I remember going to a doctor and telling him like, hey man, I need to get this solved. I was a physical person, an active person. Like, hey, can you fix this? Because I got to go. Our ministry is about to launch. It's a new year. We got to move. Can you get this done? And he stopped me and he was like, hey, man, I need to acclimate you to your new reality. He said, you have multiple problematic discs. There is no surgical option that can fix you at this moment. He said, let me tell you something, man. The situation you're in is, is so fragile 
that if you're dismoved just a little bit, it'll pinch off that nerve for good. You'll lose the use of your leg. I don't know that you'll be able to walk again. And then I'll never forget, he pointed over at my pregnant wife and he said, let me tell you something, you can't help her. And if something doesn't change in your back, you won't be able to hold that baby. And when he said that, it was like the room began to spin. Like, what are you saying? And I was like, what can we do? And he was like, you need to go home and pray that your back will heal itself. And I laid on my face for a month on the floor in my living room. And, and I remember after that, by the grace of God, I was able to stand, but it was a tough thing. Lost a lot of weight just because it was hard to eat with the drugs I was on and walking with the cane. And, and I remember I showed up to my physical therapist and came to her and I just said, this can't be my new normal. This, this can't be the way things are for the rest of my life. And, and I'll never forget this. You know, she was an amazing physical therapist, nice person, but we had a moment where she looked at me and said, we will do everything we can to fix things. And let me tell you, at that moment, I had a compelling goal. You didn't have to send me a little tweet. You didn't have to send me a little reminder on my phone. You didn't have to buzz me on my watch to tell me to work out. I was there. I was showing up. I was going to do any workout she told me to do. I was doing the workouts no person would post on their Instagram. Laying on my back, just squeezing a Nerf ball with my knees, like, okay, three more of these. Yeah, let's do it. Not the kind of workouts people cheer you on for. The kind of workouts people turn their face away from shame. But you didn't have to encourage me to do it. I was going to do everything. I wasn't in the gym lifting with the bros. I was in a recovery space with a bunch of 70 or 80-year-old ladies just trying to stand on one leg for 30 seconds going, come on, Edith, come on, Opal, we got this, you know, and just doing whatever I got to do to move. Because if you lack awe, maybe you can get moved by desperation. Now, here's my theory of motivation. You don't need all three of those necessarily. Uh, you need at least one. You may not be in an inspiring location, but you've got an accountable group, you can keep showing up to work out. Uh, you may not have an accountable group, but if you're desperate enough, you don't need it. You'll show up. But if you can get all those things together, community, desperation, awe, man, you've got a, a consistent motivational movement that will change things in your life. And you go, why are you talking about all this, Ben? Well, because we're launching this series and, uh, called Call on Heaven. And it started uh, uh, several weeks ago, at least for me, visiting with Pastor Louie, talking about the new year. What do you want to talk about? And I said, I feel like we need to talk about spiritual disciplines, just some practical ways to walk with God. I, I, I feel like our people need something just to put at the bottom shelf of like, here are some ways to develop a rhythm of walking with God. And he was like, yeah, I want to call our whole house to that. I want to encourage them to pray, to call on heaven and to fast. And, and, and I was like, man, that's a great idea. Let's, let's all do that together. I want to jump in on that. And let's all move towards this idea of, of not just picking up a few spiritual disciplines, but saying, Hey, I want to become a person of prayer. I want to become a person of fasting and not just fasting to kickstart your metabolism. Fasting to, to go without food, to go with God, to intercede on behalf of our city and the people we love in our world. And yet I know for many of you, if we're honest, if I look at you and say, Hey, I want to call you to the spiritual disciplines of prayer and fasting. You're like, yeah, I know I should probably do that. I should probably pray more. But you're not going to do it. I can give you a booklet that tells you how to do it. But great what's only happen because of great whys. Right? I remember when I was in college, I was desperate for money, so I inquired about a job to be the uh, uh, administrative assistant on the campus police department. 
And I showed up there and two seconds in, I walked in and was like, I'm not this desperate. I don't want to work in this location. This is kind of this just dank and little dark building. And yet for an hour, the guy that was leaving walked me around and was like, so this is the computer that was built in 1970 that you'll be working on, you know? Here's the card you'll insert. And here's, here's the ceiling you have to crawl into to try to duct tape the pipes when they start leaking. And, and hey, here's the bike you'll go ride on when they go on raids and see if your bike will get stolen. And I'm like, wait, what? And I'm like, man, he's just giving me technique, but I don't want the job. And so we can keep giving you technique, but if the motivation's not there, you're not going to develop as a spiritual person who prays and fasts on behalf of their city. So really what I want to do as we kick off this series, hey, if we want to be a more spiritual people, if we want to be a spiritually robust and healthy people, we need to seek the Lord. We need to call on heaven. We need to pray and maybe fast to pray. But what I want to do is say, hey, only great whys produce great whats. And the interesting thing is my theory of fitness Motivation tends to hold with spiritual motivation too. That we need awe and we need community and we need desperation. And that's not just Ben's ideas. Uh, you saw that in this passage we just read. Uh, to catch you up without going into a tremendous amount of detail, in the Old Testament, as soon as humanity breaks relationship with God, the whole world breaks. But with the stench of their sin still on them, God tells Adam and Eve, I'm sending a hero. The seed of a woman will one day crush the serpent's head. The one who deceived you and broke the world, I'm sending a boy to rescue you from the devastation of sin. And the hope of the Old Testament is the arrival of that boy. And then God begins to move all of history to designate a certain people and put them in a strategic location at the center of all the nations. And he said, you'll be my kingdom of priests. You're gonna be the people who know me and help the nations know me. And he strategically places them in Israel, the kingdom of Judah, here in this place to be the people that let the world know who God is as he prepares it to send his son right into the center of the nations so that the world might know him. And as we're arriving in this text, we get to a place that's, the nation has fallen on some hard times. Here, the kingdom of Judah is in a difficult space. They're being ruled by a king, Jehoshaphat, who's, who's a decent dude. And yet, in the midst of his leadership, he gets some disturbing news. And in verse 1, it says, After this, the Moabites and Ammonites, and some of them, the Me these guys are getting me every time. Y'all don't know how to say it either. Came against Jehoshaphat for battle. And some men came and told Jehoshaphat, a great multitude is coming against you from Edom, from beyond the sea. And behold, they are in Hezazon Tamar, that is in Gedi. So the king of Judah is informed, there is a coalition of nations coming against you. A vast horde is attacking from the south, and they've already mobilized. And when he gets that news, what? Yeah, a coalition of nations is coming after you. They're on their way. The natural next question is, how far are they? And he's told they're in En Gedi. And many of you go, well, I don't know what that means. Where is that? It would be like if Brennan ran in here and said, we're under attack. And I said, where are they? And he said, the lobby. <laughs> That's not time to create a strategy. That's not time to sharpen up your tactics. That's not time to call a meeting. You're going to react just like Jehoshaphat did in verse 3. We watched the king respond. It says, then Jehoshaphat was afraid. Appropriate response. That word in Hebrew means 
terrified. He's freaking out. There are problems beyond my capacity to handle them at my door. He's desperate. Desperation. Uh, the Oxford Dictionary defines it as a state of despair, typically one which results in rash or extreme behavior. That I am despairing about my surroundings and it's pushing me to do something rash, which is not always good. It can be a dangerous thing. But I want you to see what the king does. In the midst of his desperation, he was afraid and he set his face to seek the Lord. And he proclaimed a fast through all Judah. And Judah assembled to seek help from the Lord. From all the cities of Judah, they came to seek the Lord. They mention it three times to try to drive the seed in deep. Seek the Lord, seek the Lord, seek the Lord. In the midst of their desperation, that was the motivation they needed to do what they were supposed to do all the time, which is seek the Lord. That word Lord, when it's in all caps, is the name Yahweh, the covenant-making God. And like this God who, who made a relationship with us, who called us for a purpose. Oh God, we need you to show up. Desperation leads to seeking the Lord. Desperation leads to fasting. They didn't need necessarily a, a, a manual or a guidebook. They understood we are in trouble. There are enemies at the gates. There are difficulties beyond our capacities. And as the King Jehoshaphat reaches right past military options and right towards his maker, God, you have to move. And let me tell you something. If we're going to be a people of prayer in these days, one of the greatest motivations we have is desperation. Desperation. Are we scared? Uh, it's interesting. Um, one of my favorite professors is Dr. Hannah that I took in seminary. And he was teaching us about awakenings, revivals at different times in history where God moves in power. And he defined awakenings. He says, what is an awakening? It's when a whole bunch of folks came. He's kind of country. When a whole bunch of folks came to Christ and then changed the culture in which they were operating. That's his definition. Folks came to Christ and it changed the culture in which they were operating. And then he said, if sociology is true, there are more Christians and churchgoers in our country than ever before. And there have never been so many of us who have had so little influence on the culture. It's not how big your meetings are. It's what happens afterwards that means anything. And when he was describing awakenings, he said, it's a movement of God to get us to do what we should be doing anyway. God's people become interested in God's priorities. That's an awakening. That's a revival. And there's spillover from that. There's an energizing of people to pray. And it becomes a mobilization of serving in the city, a mobilization of proclamation of the gospel, a mobilization of, of discipleship, of training people to walk with God. But, but if you look at when these big moments of revival happened often in the world, they were precipitated by desperation, by people who got scared. You saw it in what's called the Great Awakening in America where God moved in power and one in 10 Americans put their faith in Jesus. It's pretty wild. And what was happening at that moment, uh, Jonathan Edwards was a pastor in Northampton. And as you can read about what was happening in Northampton before those days, uh, historians say it was a time of unusual wickedness. Listen to this description. The young people had begun an evil practice of night walking, frequenting the taverns with lewd practices. 
and they would gather together late into the night and get together called frolics, and it was getting ugly. But into this lethargy towards the things of God, the spirit began to blow. That they looked around and said, you know what, there's something going on with our kids. And you had parents get concerned about their kids. It's interesting, at the same time, 1600s in England, uh, Puritanism had been rejected. People didn't want that, the stiff religion of the Puritans. And what happened, though, was sort of a deism took place. We think there's a God up there, but he's not really interested in us, and frankly, we're not really interested in him. And in the midst of that time, England had discovered how to make gin. And we're so good at it that one historian says every sixth house in London was a gin shop. One bishop said, gin has made the English people what they never were before, cruel and inhuman. And what you found is as a disinterest in God took over, a license to do whatever I want took hold. And in the midst of that, crime began to skyrocket. Abuse of children, disregard of those who were in need, violence took hold. And it became so unsafe that the government realized we have to step in and they started to crack down with harder laws and stiffer punishments. There was over 160 offenses that were punishable by death in London. They set up a permanent gallows in the center of the city because they thought if we kill these people publicly, it'll discourage some other people. But what happened was in London, it became a show. You would come out with your family to watch the hangings. And so you realize we need just laws but laws alone won't save a nation. We need a renovation of heart. And so what happened in those days is parents that were scared for their kids, men and women who were scared for their country, people who were desperate began to pray and began to seek God's face. I love that verb, seek. Do you know what it means? It means to tread or to trample. It's the idea of I walk a path so many times I make a trail that this is so a rhythm of mine that you know where I'm going. You don't have to wonder if I'm wandering. I got a beeline I'm making every day. It says this group of people, they were so desperate. The forces against us are bigger than us. And so they just trampled a path into the presence of the Lord. We're gonna seek you. We're gonna seek you. We're gonna seek you. We may need some pointers on how to do it, but we don't need to be motivated to do it. We got desperation driving us to be people of fasting and prayer. Are we there right now? I don't know. These are difficult days. Political division. Pew Research uh, did a study on Americans and politics recently. And their one sentence summary is, Americans' views of politics and elected officials are unrelentingly negative with little hope of improvement on the horizon. Happy New Year. 65% of Americans say they always or often feel exhausted thinking about politics. 55% feel angry, and only 10% feel hopeful. Uh, are we desperate enough? I don't know. D.C., our, our homicide rate's up 35% from, from last year. 60% from 10 years ago. Violent crime's up 39%. Vehicle theft's up 82%. Atlanta, your homicide rates are down, that's good. But your vehicle theft is up 61%, so, you know, watch where you park. Uh, Broccoli City posted a video the other day of a woman in Southeast in the grocery store. and uh, 
They asked her where she lived. She told them where in Southeast DC. And, and she said, but I'm trying to move. And they asked her why. And she's walking with her young son. And, and you can see her trying to find the right words to say in that moment. And her son just leaned over and went, because it's messed up. And just in his own little world, he's like, it's, it's messed up. What's going on around here? And I think we can look at that and say, yeah, what is happening here? Are we desperate enough? The political division, distress and anxiety about mental health, shootings and suicides, wars and rumors of wars, wondering if peace is possible, wondering if we're all going to destroy each other. Are we desperate enough? I don't know. I can't answer that for you. I hope so. But I'll tell you what happens when we are desperate enough. We will pray. We'll seek the Lord. I won't have to beg you, arm twist you, plead with you. Please, just a little bit, just bow your head. But don't fall asleep just for a minute. Like if you're desperate enough, going, oh God, we need you to intervene, you'll pray. I told a story years ago of a buddy of mine on an airplane. And the engines gave out. Plane began to plummet. And he said, in that moment, half the plane got religion. And not just like, oh, God, help us. They were like, Jesus Christ, the Son of God from Nazareth, have mercy. I mean, he's like, it got specific. (laughs) When you're desperate enough, you'll hit your knees and pray. And I don't know if we are or not, but I'm, I'm praying we are. But here's the thing, that's not enough. Because desperation can lead you to prayer, and it can also lead to some pretty terrible things. Desperate people can do terrible things. So my hope is desperation will lead us to prayer. But what they had, and I think we need, that will motivate us to be a prayerful people on behalf of our cities and our country and the world, is we need desperation and awe. We need to go, I can't solve this. But I know somebody who can. And that's where Jehoshaphat's leadership shines. His name, Jehoshaphat, means God is judge. And not just judge like with a gavel, judge like ruler and governor. His name means God's in control. And he lives up to it in the next verse, verse 5. It says, Jehoshaphat stood in the assembly of Judah in Jerusalem and the house of the Lord before the new court. And he said, O Lord, God of our fathers, are you not God in heaven? And then listen to what he says. You rule over all the kingdoms of the nations. Is he reminding God of that? God, you rule over the kingdoms of the nations. Say what now? Oh yeah, that's right. He's not reminding God. He's reminding himself. And he's reminding the people. Yes, we're desperate, but we're not the only ones in the equation. We have a relationship with the Lord, the Almighty. And guess what? He's not scared of a coalition of people whose names are hard to pronounce. He is a king over all the kings. He is the ruler of all nations. And your hand are power and might so that none can withstand you. He says, these problems are too big for me, but they're not too big for you. And so in the midst of that, he, he begs God to move, uses some language pulling from, from Solomon's day of dedication to the temple. There's, there's language from the exodus of God's rescuing in the past. He's recalling the faithfulness of God in the past. And then he has that beautiful prayer in verse 12 where he begs God, will you execute judgment? We are powerless against this great horde that's coming against you, us. We do not know what to do, but our eyes are on you. Let me tell you, as a leader, It doesn't feel good to say that first part. I don't know if you've ever led something. And if your people say, what do we do, boss? You don't want to start with, I have no idea. (laughs) 
that, that's, that's tough. It's a tough spot as a leader. And yet he doesn't have time to play games. They're in the lobby. They're coming at you. And he says, you know what? I don't have a plan. But my plan is to set my eyes on him. So we're going to pray and we're going to fast and we're going to burn a road into the presence of the Lord and we're going to seek his face because we can't rule over the nations, but he does. And it's when desperation and awe come together that you'll find the motivation to be a spiritual person. You won't have to set reminders on your phone. We won't have to beg you and arm twist you. You'll go, we live in desperate times, but we live with an almighty God. And when those come together, desperation and awe, there's power. So I remember for me, you know, growing up, um, I would go with my dad to, uh, to Beeville and, and hang out with him, you know, once a month, twice a month, that sort of thing. And uh, I remember we would go, and, and he had so many great friends, but we would go sometimes to parties with his friends. And I remember there was one guy that I always thought was so mean, especially when he was drunk. And I remember it was, it was a moment, like I still remember it. Like, you know, your memory works in snapshots. I remember the moment as a kid, I looked at a grown man and I decided to hate him. He was, just, he was a mean drunk. He's being mean to kids. And I just looked in my heart and I was like, I despise that man. And I held on to that for a very long time. And I remember it was years later, like teens, 20s, 30s later, I got this incredible phone call from my dad I thought I would never hear. My dad called me and asked if I wanted to go to a Christian retreat. I never thought my dad would ever be interested in something like that. But all his buddies had started to go on this retreat and they had all come back and were asking others to go and, and go to this Christian deal. And, and guys, that you're like, they went to what now? Were they confused? Did they get lost? Like, no, they went to this thing. They somehow met with God and now they're convincing my dad to go. And I remember I was like, yeah, I'll go. And so I went to this retreat and I showed up out there and it was down in Texas, South Texas with some country dudes. Like I'll never forget the first talk that guy put up a billboard with a big deer on it with a scope pointed at the deer. And his opening line was, knowing God is like hunting for muy grande. And I was like, <laughs> okay. And then when they led worship, it was, uh, I'll, I'll never forget, this guy had a, a wood whistle. And they would sing that song, This Train is Bound for Glory, which there are varieties of ways to do it. I'd never heard this way to do it. This was kind of the more country version where they'd go, this train is bound for glory, this train. And then he'd go, woo, woo, this train is bound for glory, this train, woo, woo. And I was like, oh, oh no. Like, I'm here for days. Like, I, uh, what, what have I done? You know, I'm, I'm trapped. But there in the midst of whatever the culture is, the truth about the power of God, the beauty of God, the grace of God was being expressed through people who had had their lives really changed by God. And let me tell you something. I started to realize, hey, a lot of these cultural trappings, this doesn't really matter. These are men who God's changed their lives. And they're ministering to my dad and to me and to these other men. And there was a moment in the retreat where they handed us all these letters that people had written to us, prayers they were praying for us as God was meeting with us. And I looked around and I was there with some big old country boys and some hard biker dudes crying, weeping, praying because God was moving in their life. 
And I remember I had my little stack of letters and I opened up one. I couldn't believe it. It was from that man when I was a kid. And he was writing a letter to me, praying for me. And he started the letter saying, you, you know what I was like. You know I was destroying my life. I would go out to that hunting lease and be drunk for days on end, running away from my pain. He said, but Jesus Christ forgave me. God loves me. And I'll never forget, he said, Ben, now that same hunting lease where I used to get drunk for days, I drive around listening to worship music. He said, isn't that crazy? I'm so grateful that God would reach down to someone like me. And I remember in that moment going, God rules over Beeville, which surprises none of you. But in my view, I just thought, man, the sovereignty of God stops at the borders of Beeville because I couldn't affect change, but it's not too big for him. He's like, no, I can move mountains. I can change kings and kingdoms and I can take hard flinty hearts and make them a heart of flesh. I can move. And I just remember in that moment, I had the right theology here, but it got in here. My God can do anything. My God can say that guy, the last guy, well, thank God God's heart's not like mine because I had dismissed him. And God just began to open my eyes of what's possible. It's too big for us. We don't know what to do. And I'm desperate enough that I got no answers. And in my desperation, I turn to God Almighty, the King of kings, the Lord of lords, who rules over the nations. And he goes, you know what? But you can move. And you're not scared. And you move in power. And to be clear, our battles are not against flesh and blood. Paul says in the New Testament, it's against powers and principalities, spiritual forces of darkness. Yes, we need just laws. Yes, we need equitable enforcement of those laws. But what we need in our country is a spiritual renovation of heart. And God can do that. God can do that. He can do it to whoever he wants. And when you get that combination of desperation and awe, we're going to be a praying people. We're going to be a praying people. And we're not going to look around and just complain about everything spiraling down. And we're not going to put bumper stickers on our car voting for the meteor or whatever. Remember that last time? To take out the world. You go, no, we have a God on high. And let me tell you something. When people see that we are not burying our heads in the sand about the difficulties of this world, but we have an unshakable hope, that's power. And they'll see it. And we don't have time to read through the rest of this. We read it earlier. They gather, and I just love the passage. It said, they stood before the Lord with their little ones, their wives, and their children. It said, this is for all of us. We're all a part of this. And they're standing there, and then God grabs a guy, and it gives his whole genealogy. Why? It's like, to show you, like, he wasn't the king. He wasn't a prophet. He was... He was, he was in the band. He's from the line of Asaph. The drummer came out from behind the shield and was like, hey, the sovereign Lord's got a word for us. This is his fight, not ours. We got to stand firm. You got to hold your position. But you watch the Lord save. And Jehoshaphat says, that's awesome, band. You go first. That's one of my favorite parts about the story. He's like, we're going to march out to war. Put the band out front. And they're like, okay. Like, this is not an intimidating force. 
but it's a show of faith. And they show up, and this little coalition wasn't bound together as tight as they thought they were. They start fighting each other, beating each other up, and Jehoshaphat shows up, and they're just walking towards it with their silly little singing strategy. And they show up, and the battle's won. And they called that valley the valley of blessing because God moves, and God does what he will. I'll tell you, when, when God put me on my face for a month with my back, I was begging him to, to heal my back. Will you heal it? Will you heal it? Will you heal it? And I remember as I was praying that, I was taking like this steroid that, that, man, I couldn't sleep at night. So I was only sleeping like two, three hours a night. So I'm just wide awake on the floor, just staring at my carpet. And, uh, and then I would take this other medication and uh, I'm begging him to heal my back. And the other one gave me the hiccups. Which my back, the nerves were so raw that when the AC kicked on, waves of nerve pain would shoot through my legs because it would shake the floor just a little bit. And so the hiccups, oof, it got me desperate. And in my desperation, I didn't pray in some of the most polite ways that Christians do in polite society. Lord, thank you for this day. Bless this food. May it nourish our bodies. And all that, all that went out the window. It was more like, really? Really? I'm asking you to heal and you give me hiccups. I'm just so, like he just took me to the place of like, I don't even have the words. I don't even know what to say. You're making me cry. I was desperate. God, please, will you do something? And then in that, in the midst of that frustration, I was like, you know what? Let's broaden the scope. Let's not limit it to Ben's pain. Let's talk about all the pain in the world. Will you do something? And as I started thinking about all the, it's like literally my body was stuck, but my mind just starts looking at the globe and I start thinking about the whole realm of human suffering. And I remember as I did that, it suddenly dawned on me, and the whole realm of human suffering, Ben, yours is not even in the top 10. And you are begging God earnestly to heal your back. Have you ever begged him like that for so much of the injustice around the world? The, the collective weight of sin is crushing. And so I remember in that moment with my face on the floor, my prayers began to, to change. I just started thinking about all the human suffering, all the loss, all the pain. And I started begging him, God, will you do something? Will you do something? And I had one of the most profound moments spiritually in my life. I think it's one of the reasons why he put me on my face for a month. I felt like he pressed in and said, Ben, I have. And I will. God did not stand aloof from our pain. Jesus Christ entered it. I am aware of your suffering and I'm not putting a cute bow on it, but he who knew no sin became sin for us. I took the penalty and the pain because of the crushing weight of sin and I paid for it. And these are the days of grace. I'm offering hope and salvation and rescue to my people. And then there will come a day where I will wipe away every tear and heal every wound. I will do that. I have moved and I will. And when you get that combination of desperation, God, will you move? But a certainty that he has and he will, that combination of desperation and awe will change you. It will make you a praying person. That God is not aloof from our pain, but he is powerful over it. God sees the devastation and it's real but he has the power of deliverance and can move. In 2 Corinthians in the New Testament, the Apostle Paul says, we don't want you to be unaware, brothers, of the affliction we experienced in Asia. He's like, y'all gotta know. 
We were so utterly burdened beyond our strength, we despaired of life itself. Indeed, we felt we'd received the sentence of death. But that was to make us rely not on ourselves, but on God who raises the dead. He delivered us from such a deadly peril, and he will deliver us. On him we have set our hope, and he will deliver us again. He said, I got to be real. It was desperate, but I got to be real. We got to deliver. And he was raised from the dead, and he will deliver us. And so we got desperation, but we got hope. And that will lead us to pray. That'll lead us to fast. And my prayer is, oh Lord, as your people do what your people are meant to do, use us to be catalytic agents of change in our cities, in this country, in this world. If you were encouraged by today's talk, be sure to rate us and hit subscribe on iTunes, Spotify, and wherever you stream your podcasts. To experience other talks, videos, and live gatherings, visit us online at passioncitychurch.com or download the Passion Movement app. And again, thanks for listening to the Passion City Church podcast.